Immediately after our Q&A episode, we began to feel odd about trying to carry on as we'd originally scheduled. We've said on the show before how the movies and soundtracks we respectively choose tend to reflect our mindsets and feelings at the time, but we at Soundtrack City feel the pain this country is in and cannot possibly ignore how it is making us feel. We discussed our views before the Q&A episode and briefly touched on it at the end of the recording, however the discussion is not over. We believe it will not be over until Black Lives truly matter. All of us at Soundtrack City stand with our brothers and sisters, and we will support them in this fight to equal justices and human rights. We will educate those around us who are not as aware of the issues. We will do our part to ensure that no more black men or women will be inhumanely murdered by those sworn to protect them or fall victim to the corrupt systems designed against them. Collectively, Soundtrack City has donated $75 so far to Reclaim the Block, The Innocence Project, as well as the GoFundMe for George Floyd's family. We have marched with protesters, and we have emailed 29 different city officials calling for changes to the unfair funding that favors police departments. We know this is not enough, and we are just getting started, but they will hear us, and we will help however we can to create change. In lieu of the recent events, we decided to go a different direction than originally planned. We will not be covering TV soundtracks in this new episode. We've instead chosen to each cover a film directed by or featuring black figures in Hollywood. It is no secret that cinema is a reflection of society and black actors and actresses are too often overlooked, underappreciated, and underrepresented. This is a problem that needs rectifying, and it too must begin with the people. Despite Hollywood's lack of color, there exist many movies filled with empowerment, revolution, change, and heroism, relating to or directly drawn from black history. In this episode, we each chose films featuring black men and women of power who fight for good, for change, for legacy. We sincerely hope this in no way feels like a pander episode. George Floyd's last words weigh heavily on our hearts. And the movement he has inspired will never rest. We just hope we can bring you some positivity, some light, and some good music as we celebrate Black lives and some of the amazing things Black culture has given the world. We hear you. We see you, and we stand with you. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome to Soundtrack City. Like Misa stated, we are just trying to bring some light into this dark and scary society that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that even though it's dark right now, we all have different times where we're in darkness and then we end up in light. And I know that this is dark and scary and unknown, but so many of us are together and united. And I know deep in my soul that we are making changes. I feel like I've been crying for days. Like I've been watching 
various feeds of protests from LA, Seattle, New York, Houston. Like I like one at one point I watched Houston had that second one and I watched it for seven hours because I couldn't go. Um, Cause like I had been told that when you go into the first protest, it was recommended that you quarantine for two weeks mm-hmm. and me being immunocompromised, I was going to take that very seriously. Um, and so the, the second March was within a few days. Like I think it was within that same week. And so I, I wanted to go and it was the bigger one. Uh, or it ended up being the bigger one. Um, but it was, um, it was amazing to watch. And I like, I feel like, I've been crying because like what happened to George Floyd was just so inhumane and evil and just awful. And I can't even imagine what that could be like for his family to have had to watch and feel and, and just, but then at the same time, like, I feel like I've been crying because like the uprising of the people has been so inspiring and beautiful. And it's amazing to see communities get together from, all backgrounds and all colors for one cause like that they, that they all truly believe in um you know i think that a lot of people were behind on educating themselves as far as like systemic racism and racism in general and i i'll admit that i'm guilty of it too like i didn't really understand systemic racism until i i watched that video where it explained like redlining and it explained the difference between neighborhoods and it reminded me a lot of that drew barrymore quote from ever after which one if you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners corrupted from infancy and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them what else is to be concluded sire but that you first make thieves and then punish them yes and that it, that's exactly what they do with like school districts and and housing and redlining and stuff like that. Like they set them up for failure. Absolutely. And it's it's fucking ridiculous. And I think that's the difference between you know people like you and I who are also joining the cause. Like no, we are not black, but we absolutely are what I consider anti-racist and are shedding light to anyone and everyone on every platform possible. But there are some people who just can't seem to understand, and it baffles me. Like, even today, actually, I went to church for the first time because, you know, of corona, and they finally opened up. And the Bible study class that I'm in, um, it's an older white gentleman, and he was preaching about how you cannot be a Christian and not support Black Lives Matter. You can't. Mm -hmm. And you could see so many people uncomfortable with him saying that. And there I am, like, tears rolling down my face because I'm like, yes, preach, amen. Like, say it louder. Say it louder for this kid next to me because she's over here rolling her eyes and scoffing. And he said there's two different people. There's people who want to follow God and people who want to bring happiness and love and joy and spread that. And then there's people who want to legally follow the religion and they don't truly embody the message that Jesus and God are trying to spread, that positivity, that love. 
And then people don't realize that Jesus was actually brown. <laughs> I could yeah. have a whole podcast just about that. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to me that people can hate just because of the skin color of someone, which they had no choosing. I mean, did you choose your skin color? Did you choose your eyes, Misa, when you were in utero? I mean, I wish. Exactly. I would have had green eyes, okay? <laughs> I feel like those people who are racist or, like, those people who are, like, oh, yeah, but, or, like, they try to argue against Black Lives Matter for whatever reason, I feel like those are the type of people who they they don't like to hear that they are wrong and they are they think they are so, so right. Um, like they they try to justify things that don't make sense and unfortunately they're going to do that until they die yeah well said so but anyway well, about that. <laughs> um, so of course this episode in this episode uh, we are going to celebrate black lives because black lives do matter and fuck anyone who says otherwise and human rights is not a political issue and black lives matter and black trans lives matter and black lives matter period amen <laughs> um so if you don't agree with that i got two words for you suck it or no fuck you yeah anyway <laughs> so um in this episode we really wanted to celebrate um black figures in hollywood um, like I said before, uh, Hollywood isn't best known for, you know, their, uh, I guess, uh, array of color, if you will. But despite that, um, there are still uh, ways that that can change and that can re- be rectified as well. Hollywood also needs to call for a change and they need to speak up and they need to start working toward the cause as well, I think. Um, so until then. I went with a movie that is actually part of a saga, and um, I feel a little odd that I didn't get to cover the saga first, but technically this is its own first movie in its own timeline. It just happens to take place in in the same universe as another set of movies, if that makes any sense. It does. (laughs) So my movie opens in 1998. We open at a youth detention center and there's these two boys fighting and the guards break them up. And then we cut to this older woman and her name is Marianne and she's signing in as a visitor at the detention center. And she's told that Adonis got into a fight and he's in holding. And so she goes to see him and the employee leaves them alone together to talk. And... So Marianne tells him, like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your mother. I know what it's like to lose someone. When your father died, I shut everyone out. I hurt myself. And he looks at her and he's like, I, I don't have a father. And she's like, that's not true. He died before you were born, but you had a father. And so she doesn't necessarily explain much more, but she says that she wants him to come live with her because his father was her husband and he thinks about it for a second and he looks at her and he says what was his name well his father's name was apollo and i'm covering creed (laughs) Uh, yeah (laughs) okay don't hate me for saying this 
You've only seen it once. No, no, I've actually seen it a lot. This is one of my okay. favorite movies within the franchise that you're talking about. And that's what I was, um, was going to say. I know that you love the Rocky <laughs> franchise. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite, but I love Creed. Like this movie just, I'm so excited for you to cover this. <laughs> and you know what? I, I hadn't seen Creed 2. But I went ahead and watched Creed 2. I love Creed 2. Actually, dare I say, I like it better. Wow. Okay. I mean, yeah. I like it. I definitely like it. I think I like Creed better. Okay. But okay. I absolutely love Creed 2. Interesting. Okay. So, yes. So, I'm covering Creed, uh, which uh, this movie does take place in the Rocky universe. Technically, this is the seventh Rocky movie, um, somehow not titled Adrian's Revenge, which I was not happy about, but that's fine. (laughs) Um, And this movie comes right after Rocky Balboa, which uh, actually that came out, I want to say 2006. So it's been almost 10 years and then Creed came out. Um, So I, yes, you're right. I do love the Rocky Saga. I love, love, love the Rocky Saga. Um, Apollo Creed is such a fun character. He's so awesome. And I fucking love Carl Weathers. You know, like, that's one of the reasons why Happy Gilmore is, like, up there for me. Because his fucking, his fucking golf instructor is yes. fucking Apollo Creed. I yes. fucking love him. <laughs> I was devastated when he died in part four. Um, as I'm sure most of you were. But um, so this does continue his legacy. Uh, So it turns out that Adonis, who goes by Donnie in this movie, he is actually the product of Apollo Creed's affair. Um, And so Apollo died while she was pregnant. And then he moved around from social home to like, group home to group home and he finally ended up in the detention center and this is where Marianne finally comes to get him and takes him home with her so uh this movie is of course directed by Ryan Coogler who also directed a movie called Fruitvale Station which I'm guilty of not having seen yet sorry I haven't watched either it also stars Michael B. Jordan and that was their first collaboration so Creed would mark the second time that they worked together. So that's pretty cool. Um, so, of course, like I said, uh, Adonis Donnie uh, is played by Michael B. Jordan. Rocky Balboa is played by Sylvester Stallone. Bianca is played by Tessa Thompson. Marianne Creed is played by Felicia Rashad. And Tony Bello, who is actually a real-life boxer, or was, is um, playing Pretty Ricky Conlon, who I keep wanting to say Pretty Ricky Bobby. <laughs> I keep like, I almost wrote it in my notes. And every time I used to, I'd like, I would be typing it out. It came out like Bobby. And I was like, I've never even seen Talladega Nights. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so. Funny. <laughs> um, so uh, for my research, my sources include IMDb. Wikipedia, which don't forget to make your donation. I did. You should do thesource.com, whatsong.com, as well as the Creed DVD special features. Woo-woo. So 
We cut to 2015, and Donnie is boxing in Tijuana, Mexico. And then the very next day, he quits his job at a financial group. And so he goes to Delphi Gym, which is where Apollo was known to train. And he goes up to the head trainer there, whose name is Little Duke. And he's like, here, he gives him a bunch of money. He says, I want you to train me. We can start local and then, you know, move up. And Little Duke's like, no, no one's training you. I'm going to make sure of that. And so he doesn't want him to get in the ring because his dad died in the ring. So he's not going to allow him to box and risk his life. And so Donnie ignores him. And so he gets in the ring and he puts up his keys to his Mustang. And he's like, if you can get one clean headshot, you can get the keys to my car. And he talked big. And sure enough, Danny Stuntman Wheeler, who is played by Andre Ward, another real-life boxer, knocks him clean out really easily. So Donnie feels kind of bad about losing and talking big. So Donnie ends up leaving L.A. and he decides to move to Philadelphia. The Fire by The Roots featuring John Legend starts playing. And suddenly we are in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we get some nice cityscape shots. And then we follow a taxi into the city. And we see Donnie. And he's sitting in the back seat. And he's just watching everything go by his window. Lots of murals. And then he gets to an apartment, which is like, it's partially furnished, but it's still really bare. And so he unpacks and he's looking out the window. And then the next day, we cut to the Rocky Balboa statue, and it's right around the corner from the museum. And so we see these tourists, and they're posing with the statue, and they're taking pictures. And then they walk away, and that's when Donnie walks up, and he just stares up at the statue. And then we cut to later that night, and Donnie is at Rocky Balboa's restaurant. One love, one game, one desire, one flame, one bonfire, let it burn higher. I never show signs of fatigue or turn tired, because I'm the definition of tragedy turned triumph. It's David and Goliath. The Fire was first featured on The Roots' ninth studio album titled How I Got Over. Some of the themes within the album include existentialism and African-American middle-class angst. True to Roots style, their sound is an amalgam of sounds stemming from indie rock, soul funk, and neo-soul. This album was recorded during the band's stint as house band for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Multiple studios were used during the recording process, most in Philadelphia and one in New York. How I Got Over debuted at number six on the U.S. Billboard 200 and at number three on Billboard's R&B slash hip-hop and rap album chart. Overall, the album was very well received by critics and eventually earned a Grammy nomination in 2011 for Best Rap Album, but lost to Eminem's Recovery. So for those of you who may be unfamiliar, the Roots Band formed in 1987, formed by their frontman Tariq Black Thought Trotter and drummer Amir Questlove Thompson. The band's origins lie in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. While the Roots are a hip-hop band, they've approached their music in a very different way than most. They include aspects of jazz and live instruments, 
and these differentiations in sound have set them apart and gained them critical acclaim. They've been referred to by Dot Dash as hip-hop's first legitimate band. They went through a few different name changes at first, like Radioactivity and Black to the Future, and eventually landed on the Square Roots. In 1992, they dropped the Square and they added two members of the group, and by 1993, they released their first album, Organics. By 1999, they hit platinum status with Things Fall Apart, uh, also considered their breakthrough album. Artists featured include Erica Badu, Jill Scott, and Eve. They were the band for Jay-Z's MTV Unplugged concert, and they continued to record and release music while being the house band for Jimmy Fallon, and they have worked with literally everyone, like Fall Out Boy, Elvis Costello, like a, a wide range of different artists that they've collaborated with. Um, so of course they are still active. Uh, they've been Jimmy's house band since 2009. Uh, that's when he was like late night with Jimmy Fallon and now he's tonight show with Jimmy Fallon. Did you get to see them in person when you went? I did see them in person when I went. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> um, I went to a late night with Jimmy Fallon showing in 2011 it was october 2011 and yeah i was in the fourth row it was the episode with selma hayek and it was elizabeth olsen but it was before she got really big like it was before all the marvel movies mm-hmm. like well, the ones that she was in at least and it was and uh cindy lopper was the musical guest oh that's so cool so I did get to see the roots. Oh my god, it was so fucking cool. <laughs> my fourth row. Oh my god. Yeah, and those tickets were fucking free. <gasps> it's always free to go to a taping. You I just have to, say, reserve. You have to be. You have to reserve, or you have to be there in line. You have to reserve, and you have to be there early. Gotcha. So, uh, oh, and you cannot take any pictures or have your phone out. Okay. Yeah. Like they literally, that's literally, like if you ever watch like Jimmy Fallon or one of those talk shows, you'll see like the people in suits, the girls and the guys, and they're standing all along the aisle. They're making sure you're not taking pictures. Those are the interns for NBC. Mm. I didn't realize that. Yep. So I didn't even try. (laughs) But uh, no, it was not worth it. It was so cool. And then, of course, also featured on the song is John Legend, who is a stranger to no one. He is an accomplished singer, songwriter, producer, and actor. His father was a drummer, and his mother sang in the church choir. He's been playing piano since he was four. And in college, he was the president and musical director of the jazz and pop a cappella group. After college, he produced and wrote and recorded all of his own music. His first two albums were independently released, and he sang the hooks for Kanye West's music when Kanye was still up and coming. Whoa. The name John Legend came from performance poet Jay Ivey, who told John, you sound like one of the legends. I'm going to call you John Legend. He has since been nominated for an Academy Award, Daytime Emmy, Primetime Emmy, 26 Grammy Award nominations, and 11 wins, among others. (laughs) Dang. So he might be onto something. He might be kind of talented. Yeah, just kind of, kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, but uh, this song is so like the Roots have such a great sound. Like Questlove is such yeah. a great song. God, he's amazing. He's so fun to watch. And in quarantine, like he's been doing like live feeds on on Instagram of him just like DJing, which is cool. Um, 
And they're just, they're so funny. I love that the Roots, not only are they talented musicians, but they also all have such great personalities. Like, they're so fun to watch. They really are. You know? Um, So this song was a really cool collaboration. Uh, Some of the lyrics that I like the most are by Tariq, of course. You can't escape the history that you was meant to make. That's why the highest victory is what I'm meant to take. You came to celebrate. I came to sever great. I hate losing. I refuse to make the same mistake. That is like the perfect song. <laughs> so I feel like right now that song feels really empowering. Um, I feel like that's something that could be blasting in the streets of a protest. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Because it's talking about how there's a fire inside you and you need to let it rise, let it burn. Um, so really, really good song and I love that it it just takes us into Philadelphia with that song which is perfect because that's exactly where the roots came from like their roots are literally in Philadelphia <laughs> that's amazing so um so we're at the restaurant which by the way is named Adrian's after Rocky's late wife she died before part six guys go watch it it's terrible um I'm sorry <clears throat> I'm sorry so Donnie's at the restaurant. And of course, if you've seen Rocky's restaurant in part six, it's covered with photos of Adrian and Apollo and some of his great fights and and Mickey. And there's just all these photos from the previous movies, essentially. And so Donnie's in the restaurant admiring them. And that's when Rocky comes up from downstairs. And Donnie just happens to know all of this information about him and Apollo's friendship. And he's like, oh, yeah, I heard there was a third fight between you who won. And Rocky's really confused as to how this guy knows about that. Right. <laughs> and Donnie's like, well, how did you beat him? And Rocky says, time beat him. Time takes everybody out. It's undefeated. And Donnie tells him, like, well, I'm his son. And Rocky doesn't believe him. But he's like, go ahead and call Marianne. She'll tell you. Um, so then he talks about, like, yeah, I heard that Apollo talked you out of retiring after Mickey died. And he helped you get back on your feet. I'm hoping you can train me. And Rocky's like, no, like, I can tell you're educated. Like, why would you want to fight? And he's like, I've carried the guilt of your father's death with me. He died in my hands. Like, I should have stopped that fight. And Donnie's like, maybe he wanted to go out like a fighter. Maybe he did exactly what he wanted. And Rocky's like, I think he'd rather be here talking with you. And so... This is a really cool reintroduction to Rocky. And one of the reasons why I love this movie is because, like, normally in movies like this, like, the old guy, the retired boxer comes out of nowhere and he's suddenly the mentor and you kind of have to learn his background. But instead, it's Rocky who's, we know his life, we know his background, so that makes it that much more epic. (laughs) Exactly. And this scene, the way he does the scene, it's so emotional. Yeah, yeah, like he legit knows that it's literally life or death if this kid wants to get into boxing. And after seeing what happened to his father and like he really, he looks at Donnie and he's like, there really is a resemblance. And so it's like, you kind of, it makes you think like Rocky feels guilty every time he looks at Donnie because he's the reason he's not there. Exactly. So it's, yeah, so Rocky's carrying a lot of that guilt as well. But Donnie wants him to train him and Rocky says no. So at the same time that this is happening, pretty Ricky Conlon, not Bobby, 
is set to go one-on-one with Danny Stuntman Wheeler, who is the boxer that knocked out Donnie for his car. And so they're set to go one-on-one, big pay-per-view fight. It's going to be a big deal. And then at the weigh-in, Conlon punches Wheeler and breaks his jaw. So now the fight is like up in the air. I mean, Wheeler can't fight, and they don't know if Conlon is going to fight. Um, around the same time, Donnie meets a girl. She lives downstairs from him. Her name's Bianca. She has progressive hearing loss, so she wears a, a like a, a hearing aid. Mm-hmm. And, but she's also a singer. And so she like has a show, and he sees her. And so that kind of relationship is developing in the background because, of course, it's a Rocky movie, so there has to be a love interest. Of course. And so Donnie visits Rocky another time, and he asks him for drills. And Rocky's like, man, you're really persistent. And so, you know, um, it turns out Donnie wants to go by Johnson instead of Creed because he wants to build his own legacy. And he just figures it'll be easier to, to train under the radar and stuff like that. So Rocky still won't train him. But anyway, Donnie is training at Mickey's Gym, which has been totally renovated. It's beautiful now. It doesn't look all dingy like it did in part two. Like Mickey's Gym is doing really well. And I'm pretty sure Rocky put money into it. So. Um, Donnie goes there to train, and so Rocky stops by one day, and he tells Donnie, like, all right, well, here's the thing, like, I'll train you, but you got to be in it 100%, and if you're not in it, then I'm out. He's like, okay. So then they decide to start training together. You see, I come from Mississippi. I was young and running wild. Ended up in New York City, where I had my first job. It's training montage time, and it is set to Bridging the Gap by Nas, featuring Oludara. And so we just see Donnie going through all the different trainings. So Rocky makes Donnie (laughs) chase a chicken, just like Mickey did in part one. Um, And so Donnie's like, are you serious? And Rocky's like, yeah, we're going old school. So Donnie starts chasing the chicken and then um, Rocky's watching him run along the waterfront and Rocky's just like, you call that fast? And like in a motivational way, I guess. And so then Donnie's like jumping rope while Rocky's just sitting next to him and reading a newspaper and then he's punching the bag. And we cut back to the chicken and Donnie's like having a hard time trying to catch the chicken. And Rocky's like, I thought you were fast. <laughs> and so then we see him go through everything. He's, he's running, he's jumping rope, he's push-ups, he's hitting the bag, jumping rope again, the bag again, he's running again. of this rap skit styles i mastered many brothers snatched it up and tried to match it but i'm still number one every day real and then the music comes to a stop and as the music comes to a stop the bell rings and so rocky's sitting in the chair and donnie stops jumping jump rope at the sound of the bell and he's just like he leans over he's like trying to catch his breath and rocky doesn't even look up at him and he says that bell don't mean school's out, Donnie. Keep going. That bell means hell. <laughs> so then the music starts back up again, and he starts jumping rope again. Rocky is definitely not as ruthless as Mickey was, but he's still pretty tough. Yeah. Um, 
And so then, um, so finally the montage ends with Donnie catching the chicken. And he's like, yeah. So he's like holding it. And Rocky's like, all right, good job. The chickens are slowing down. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great, it's a great sequence. It's a great callback to the Rocky movie. uh, Because part of what made those movies so great was that training montage. It's cool to see it get updated like this with an updated soundtrack, an updated sound in general. Um, but this song in particular was still a callback. So Bridging the Gap is the second single from Nas's album Street Disciple. And that was his seventh, released on November 30th, 2004. The featured singer on the track is none other than Nas's father, Oludara. He is the voice of the hook of the song, Uh, basically the chorus, uh, where he tells his origin story and having a child and naming him Nas. If the song sounds familiar, it's because it samples Manish Boy by Muddy Waters, which was my honorable mention for Goodfellas. Yes. Yep, so I had to pick this one. Uh, So the single was released ahead of the album on October 5th, 2004, and in 2008, Seven years prior to being on the Creed soundtrack, it was included on the Cadillac Records film soundtrack. Have you seen that? I have not. I haven't either, but just but just by finding out that little bit of trivia. Maybe, yeah, that, it makes me want to like stop right now and go watch it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such a nerd. <laughs> so in addition to being on the track, Nas's father Olu is also in the music video for the song. The music video is so fucking cool. So it's Nas and he's singing with his father and there's women with 50s style hair and 50s style undergarments, but they're dancing like music video girls. Oh my God, that's so cute. So it, uh, this, oh, this song is so jamming. And so then there's also, it also cuts to like these men sitting around uh, while the other ones dance. And so they're all just kind of cheering each other on. And then you see Nas and his dad, and they're standing in front of just a big wall of old photographs of their family and different generations. Um, so for those of you who, are, who may not be as familiar, Nas is a rapper, songwriter, and entrepreneur, son of jazz musician Olu Dara. Nas began recording in the late 80s, but he didn't release anything just yet. Uh, In 1992, he was signed to Columbia Records, and his debut album came out two years later. It was met with lots of positive feedback, and the source named it the best album of 1994. Through music and freestyles, Nas developed a bit of a rivalry with Jay-Z. The two went back and forth, calling each other out in songs and insulting each other, and their feud would eventually subside, and Nas was signed to Def Jam Recordings, where Jay-Z stood as president. After leaving Def Jam, Nas began his own independent record label called Mass Appeal, which under which he releases his music, as well as the artists signed, such as Goldie James, DJ Shadow, Manny Fresh, and Cuz Lightyear. I love that name. Yeah. <laughs> Nas has been nominated for 22 awards for his music and has won two. He deserves more. Oh, I know. Yeah, I... Uh, I love that he sampled Muddy Waters. Oh, it's such a good callback, you know? Yeah, it really is. The reason why he named it Bridging the Gap is because this song melds together lots of different aspects, like rap and jazz and hip-hop, and they all kind of come together into this kind of beautiful composition of music. 
Now we getting busy, bridging the gap from the blues of jazz to rap. The history of music on this track. Born in the game, discovered my father's music like Trent searching through boxes of purple rain. So then, after the training montage, Donnie gets challenged by a fighter at Mickey's gym. And at first, Rocky doesn't want to do it, but Donnie is up for it because he's, of course, just excited to just do anything and get his name out there. Um, and on the night of the fight, his opponent's father and manager finds out that Donnie is Creed's blood. And he confronts Rocky about it. And Rocky's like, hey, he just wants to make a name on his own. Can you just keep this between us? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Your secret's safe with me. And the next morning, <laughs> after Donnie won the fight the night before, the next morning, um, it's in the newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> so big, like, big deal. Like, Apollo Creed has a son, and he's a boxer, and all this. And they start, they refer to whether or not this tarnishes Apollo's legacy, and they're like, they don't really talk much about that. They're just talking about how, like, they speculate on whether or not Donnie can live up to the name. Which is so often how when you have a son or someone who's following in the footsteps, and not even necessarily following, but seriously trying to make their own name, like Creed was. Or Donnie yeah. was, so. Yeah, yeah. So I can totally understand why he would want to go by Johnson. Yeah. Like, why he would want to fly under the radar, because... Well, there was so much also tied to it because if he went around telling people I'm Creed's son, he'd have to admit like I'm the product of an affair and my father died before I was born. Oh, and he's the greatest boxer who ever lived. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> So he it's literally a can of worms. Yeah. If he tries to tell someone. On top of that, now people are speculating all the pressure that comes with the Creed name. And now he's going to doubt if he can live up to it, which is so hard, like you said. Yeah. And, and, and it happens in sports. It happens in film. It happens in wrestling. Like, legacies are hard. They're hard to carry on. You know, it's, it takes a lot of work and effort. Uh, and, and then if he, you have that, like, kind of backlash, like, oh, he's only good because he is their son. Like, they don't give them that due credit. You know what I mean? I can understand why Donnie wanted to go another way but so now everybody's found him out and so Bianca was pissed because he wasn't straight with her and she had to she had to find out when he when he moved into Rocky's house is when she found out that he even knew Rocky Balboa so he's been really secretive um but they they work things out they're fine of course because love interest Rocky movie (laughs) of course so pretty Ricky Conlon's manager hears about this and he meets up with Rocky and Donnie and he's like hey I'm proposing a fight but you have to use the name Creed and so Donnie is really reluctant about this because again he wanted to make his own name but he can make big money and get a lot of exposure and a high profile fight on pay-per-view if he calls himself Creed so he decides to do it so They agree to do the fight. And as they're training for the fight, Rocky gets sick. And it turns out he has lymphoma, which is cancer. And uh, this is really tough because Rocky is older. He has fewer days ahead of him than he has behind him now. And he's realizing that too. But um, 
when the doctor presents chemotherapy as an option, he turns it down because he says like, oh, my wife tried that and it didn't work. So no thanks. So Rocky is more or less saying that he's ready to die. And he doesn't tell Donnie right away. Donnie finds out because he finds the pamphlets in his pocket. And he confronts him. And Rocky's like, no, I'm not doing treatment. You know, like, I'm just going to let it go. It's fine. And Donnie's pissed. Donnie can't believe that Rocky would just give up like that. So he eventually tells Rocky, like, I can't, I can't just continue to train while you sit back and die. If I'm going to fight, you're going to fight. And so they make the deal. And so Rocky decides to start chemo. And so on Rocky's first day of chemo, Donnie comes and sits in the room with him. And so Rocky pulls out a stopwatch. And he's like, you remember this? And Donnie's like, yeah. He's like, okay, I want you to start shadow boxing. This is a nice room. Let me see what you can do. And so he literally makes Donnie start working out in his, in his like clinic room while he's getting his infusion so we go into a a new training montage and it's set to lord knows slash fighting strong by meek mill janae aiku and ludwig joransson and so the song starts off kind of like more so score and the lyrics will come in a little later. So it begins with a bit of a score. And so Donnie starts running up and down the stairs and the drums come in and they're so powerful and they sound like his feet. And he's just going up and down, up and down at rapid speed. And then he's doing push-ups in the room and Rocky's like, oh, we used to do those with one hand. I wasn't going to say anything, but. <laughs> so Donnie starts doing one hand push-ups. And then back to shadow boxing, back to running. And so he's running in the street. He's jump roping at the gym. And then we cut to him also at home. He's living with Rocky now. And he's helping Rocky to the bathroom when Rocky gets sick because he's having like side effect reactions to the chemo because it can make you sick. And so then, you know, we see kind of Donnie struggling in between helping Rocky and training just because it's taking a toll on him emotionally to see Rocky this way. And then, but he continues training. So he's back up on the treadmill and then he's helping Rocky. He's sitting with Rocky while Rocky's eating chemo. He's putting Rocky to bed and Rocky's losing his hair. And then we just cut to more of like, we cut to Donnie sparring and then we cut to Conlon and he's sparring and then Donnie's training and Rocky's watching him and it's just back and forth. And we get to see the contrast but also the similarities between the two fighters. Like Conlon is very focused. Like he's not even blinking as he's like sparring with his partner. And Donnie's very focused as well. And the punches are flying. Like both of them are so fast. And then we get to like Donnie doing pull-ups and him and Rocky are watching Conlon footage and they're studying him. And so then this part is so fucking cool. This is part of the reason why I chose this song. Um, So Donnie's running in the streets of Philadelphia and he's in all gray workout clothes, similarly to Rocky part one. And he's running down the street and he's running to the front street gym where they've been training and Rocky's there. And so Donnie's running that way. And throughout the whole movie, uh, 
every time they would like leave the gym or they'd walk by the gym, they would see these guys like on their little motorbikes or like they'd be on their motorbikes or they'd be on their ATVs and they'd just be hanging out outside the gym. And so Johnny's running by them and they see him and they're like, hey, are you going to see Rock? And he's like, yeah, let's go. And so he challenges them basically like to a race down to the mm -hmm. gym. So they're all on motorbikes and ATVs and he's just running like Literally, Michael B. Jordan is fucking flying through the streets of Philadelphia. Like, it is incredible to see. Like, he's in better shape than Rocky was in part. Oh my God, so much better. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. This scene actually makes me have like, you know, when you're watching a movie and you have like that happy, stupid smile on your face because you're just like so proud. And then yeah. you in your eyes because you're like, oh my God. That's how I am when I watch this scene. It's just so epic, and it's so cool to see the scene revisited, revamped, new music, new characters. Like it's, it's just so cool. So we're seeing Donnie run. And then there's this really cool, like slow motion part where we're behind him and he's ahead of all the bikes. And this is where the female vocalist comes in and then they meld in some of gonna fly now. And it's just the perfect mesh of both songs. And then, so finally, like, uh, they all make it to the Front Street Gym, and all the ATVs and bikes are circling Donnie as he's, like, shadow boxing in the street. And he calls out to Rocky, and he looks up in the window, and Rocky's, like, waving down at them, and they're all just calling out to him. And it's just, oh, it's such a cool fucking scene. It's such a cool, like, shot. And, oh, those bikes, and just everything makes the scene so cool. Agreed. I can't even like I went I went and watched when I chose this song I went and made sure the clip was on YouTube because I want people to see it <laughs> it will be on the blog it's just a, it's a beautiful scene a beautiful homage to the first film and just a perfect recreation and then again like we were saying before like a whole new uh a whole new name to it you know yeah um so this scene was cool and like you said, I love that Kugler went back and like added all those little pieces from the Rocky franchise. Like it really makes, even though, like you said, it's in a different timeline or a different, you know, not universe, a different time than the Rocky movies took place. It really ties them together. So it brings in those old fans as well as new fans like myself. So like I said, the song was score heavy, but... The part where they start running toward the gym, that's where the Meek Mill lyrics came in. And then that awesome slow motion part, We're Gonna Fly Now, comes in. It's like a perfect mesh of three different songs. It was so well done. And so um, I will include this track as well as the original Meek Mill track that the verse was taken from. Uh, so that one's called Lord Knows by Meek Mill. And so that is a song from Meek Mill's second studio album entitled Dreams Worth More Than Money. The album was released on June 29th, 2015 and entered the U.S. Billboard 200 at number one. Wow. Yeah, skyrocketed. So in an interview with Hip Hop DX, 
Meek Mill talked about the album and how he wanted to focus more on rapping than money. He said he'd come to realize that there's more to the music industry than wealth, hence the title of the album. Meek Mill, for those who may not know, was born in South Philadelphia. Growing up, his uncle was a DJ known as Grandmaster Nell, whose influence also inspired Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff. Absolutely. This is where Meek Mill's interest in music began. He has since released four studio albums, he's headlined tours, and he's become an activist. After being unjustly imprisoned due to minor probation violations in 2018, Meek Mill became the co-founder of Reform Alliance Foundation, created in an effort to reduce the number of people who are unjustly under control of the criminal justice system, starting with probation and parole. After his arrest, Meek Mill realized his case was not the first, but rather one in millions. Too many people are trapped in a system with no way and no voice to fight back. The Reform Alliance is committed to changing mass supervision laws. So, so appropriate. Uh, yeah, so I thought that that was, um, that's kind of a call on what's happening now. Uh, you know, you hear all these stories about people who are, who are in jail for stupid reasons or minor reasons when rapists are running free and fucking one of them is the president. So it's like, it's bullshit, right? It really is. Um, so after, it was after his experience of the law that he realized he wanted to do something, which I absolutely admire. Um, I love when a celebrity can take their platform and use it for good and genuinely mean it, you know? Yeah. Uh, not just because it's trending, not just because it's in the news, you know, like this is something that happened to him. He felt it personally and he didn't want anyone to go through it ever again. So I commend him for that for sure. The score section of this track was composed by Ludwig Jorensen, who is a well-known Swedish composer, and he was brought on to score the film Creed. He and director Ryan Coogler had previously worked together on Fruitvale Station, and which, like I said, also starred Michael B. Jordan. Coogler said the musical legacy of the Rocky film saga was such a focal point, so while they recorded new songs for the soundtrack, Many tracks incorporated modernized samples of the songs in the previous films. So this, of course, is an example of one of them. Um, a, a lot of the other songs on the soundtrack, many of which end up on my honorable mentions list, they do incorporate some of the Rocky scores or aspects of the scores. So you'll recognize a lot of them. And I think you'll love the way they updated them. I think that this is an awesome revamped soundtrack for a new generation. I love it. Um, Ludwig said that Meek Mill immediately came to mind when they were going to need a voice from Philly. He said he absolutely wanted to have Meek's vocals for the big training montage. Ludwig Jorensen has produced and written songs with Childish Gambino and Vampire Weekend in the past. And he's also done music for films like Marley and Me, Year One, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, Black Panther, Venom, and Creed Two. Yeah, he's very well known. Yeah, for sure. He's he's got an array of things on his discography. Yeah, <laughs> super talented. Um, so after the big training montage, it is finally the night before the fight. We are in Liverpool, England, and they have the press conference, and Conlon talks big, and he talks shit, and there's almost a scuffle because it's a Rocky movie, but they don't actually fight. And then... Um, the next night, 
Donnie and his crew get to the dressing room and they find a present. And it's from Marianne. And it has a note that says, build your own legacy. And inside are American flag trunks that look exactly like the ones Apollo Creed wore in his first fight with Rocky. And on the front, it says Creed. And on the back, it says Johnson. Such a sweet moment, too. So cute. And so, so he tries them on and he's looking at them and it's, you know, it's becoming real. So right before they go to the ring, Rocky starts giving him like a last minute pep talk. Then someone comes to get them and they head out to the ring. And so this, oh, the scene is so like, it's that tension, but it's that good kind of tension because we're following like Rocky and Donnie as they walk down the long hallway all the way out into the arena. And you can hear, as we get closer, you can hear his entrance music and you can hear the roar of the crowd getting louder and louder as they get closer and closer. And for his entrance theme, Donnie chose Hail Mary by Tupac. Come with me. And so we're watching them go down the hall and the song is radiating off of the stadium walls and they're getting closer and closer. Finally, they get to the curtain, they walk through and Donnie makes his entrance and we're still following him with the camera from behind him and he's getting all this heat. Everybody's booing him. We're in Liverpool, England, so they're rooting for Common. They've been chanting for Common. And so Donnie walks all the way to the ring, all the way around, he gets inside. And everyone just, they go from booing him to chanting for Conlon. So the song is from Tupac Shakur's fifth studio album, The Don Killuminati, The Seven Day Theory. Although at the time that he released this, he was going by Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I, I was confused at first because Spotify, he's number Tupac. On Wikipedia, he's T-U-Pac. And... And then the Machiavelli thing happened. So I kept getting redirected a lot. I'll just say that. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I like to think of him as kind of like Prince, you know, like reinventing yeah. himself. Yes. Like when, when I read that he was going by Machiavelli toward that last toward those last few months, I um that's immediately what I thought. I was like, oh, so he's the artist formerly known as Tupac. <laughs> I get it. So Tupac Shakur, of course, a name that everybody knows. Uh, his album was released on November 5th, 1996, nearly two months after he was shot to death. It was said that because the album was not heard until after Tupac passed, that his death gave the overall mood a very eerie feeling, uh, kind of chilling in some sense, as the lyrics tend to get really dark on the album. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course those conspiracy theorists who like to think that Tupac is still alive or that Tupac faked his death and so that there are clues if you want to read further into that. Um, I love a good conspiracy theory. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, if, if Tupac staged his death, I think he wanted to be left alone. So maybe you should just leave it alone. I agree. But anyway... Some refer to the album as Tupac's most influential body of work. At the time, Tupac had changed his name to Machiavelli, which was a play on the name of the philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, 
who some believe staged his own death. Damn. That's so that's yeah. So that's kind of where like some people take that as a clue. Um, But it it could just be cool name. You know, you never know. Um, I don't know. Tupac was like crazy educated. Exactly. Like he, I don't think anything was a mistake. Nothing. But, But it's, I can see why those who, again, want to believe that he is alive, that he is okay, that I can see why they would think that he was, um, you know, giving it away in such a sense. Um, But for those of you who may not know much about Tupac, he was an artist. He was a rapper. He was a singer. He was a poet. And to many, he is a symbol of resistance against inequality. Tupac Shakur was born in East Harlem, New York. When he attended Baltimore School for the Arts, he studied ballet, acting, poetry, and jazz. He was also known to the student body as the school's best rapper. His first record was released in 1989 under the moniker MC New York. He rose to fame with his debut album, Tupacalypse Now. Some of the singles from the album include lyrics about struggling under socioeconomic disadvantages, but the lyrical content about police brutality got the attention of VP at the time, Dan Quayle. Tupac defended his work, and the album was certified gold. He went on to commercial success, song after song ending up on the Billboard charts. He was signed to Death Row Records alongside Marion Suge Knight, who had already started a rivalry, East Coast, West Coast, LA versus New York. So we know that rivalry. Mm-hmm. Versus Snoop Dogg, Tupac, all them. So <laughs> I, lo- I watched a lot of VH1, so I learned about that <laughs> one. <laughs> I was little. Um, so the heat would eventually lead to suspicion when on September 7th, 1996, Tupac, being driven down the Las Vegas Strip by Suge Knight, was shot by an assailant in a car that drove up next to them. Four bullets struck Shakur, one in the arm, one in the thigh, two in the chest, with one of them penetrating his lung. He was taken to a hospital, put on life support, and eventually into a medically induced coma to prevent involuntary reactions. Six days later, on September 13, 1996, Tupac Shakur died from internal bleeding. Even in death, Tupac has proven to be an influential character and figure in music and in pop culture. The Don Killuminati is one of seven of Tupac's posthumously released albums, and his music, lyrics, and philosophies are still recited to this day. Can I just tell you, I have chills, like, listening to everything about Tupac. I mean, he is truly one of a kind. He's like something that I hold on a pedestal, his everything about him, his music, his lyric, his lifestyle. He was so calm, even through all of these things. Like I remember the day he died, seeing it on the news. I know that we're from a different generation than those who wonder where they were when John Lennon was shot. Yeah. Um, And I know that when John Lennon was shot, you know, some people said that he was a symbol of peace and that when he died, all of that seemed to be lost. And I don't give a shit about John Lennon, but I can see how that would be bad for Tupac, for like our generation, for the generations just a little older than us too and anyone else who was influenced by him. Like Tupac really was a symbol of, you know, you know, 
freedom of speech and he was a symbol of peace and he was a voice for the voiceless and you know it's kind of up there with Kurt Cobain when he died and everyone just kind of wondered where they were going to go next it was just like this aimless sadness that I think people are still feeling to this day you know there will be no more Tupac's like Tupac was the one and only and irreplaceable and he was so eloquent like Mm -hmm. I mean one of my favorite things that they've done to memorialize him is in Freedom Riders did you see that movie I didn't okay or read the journals if you've done that you know that the teacher who was in that movie she used Tupac to help her kids learn poetry I mean just taking his lyrics and realizing he was a genius and we will never have anyone like him and it's heartbreaking yeah it's sad it's sad but silver lining he was on this earth for a few decades and he shared his art and his love and his compassion and his words and your children's children's children will know Tupac Shakur yes Excuse me. you know yeah like it's it's just going to be one of those things that generations are going to be able to continue to pass on. Um, so in a way, he's he's never really dead, but he's just not here. And I mean, people are still quoting his lyrics, you know, putting his face on posters, even right now with the riots and you know the peaceful marches and things like that. Like he's still very very much alive. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, he's still very much a voice for the movement. Yes. So Donnie makes this epic entrance to Hail Mary. And then the stadium goes dark. And I'm going to admit, like, I almost I almost picked this song, too, because Pretty Ricky Conlon's entrance is such fucking fire. Oh, my God. <laughs> he literally has a fire breather walking through the ring. Mm-hmm. It is such a cool fucking entrance. And that song, mm so smooth and then he walks out of the blue light and the smoke and it just looks so fucking it's like a wrestling entrance it looks so fucking cool (laughs) and um so conlon gets into the ring the fight starts and of course rocky movies are known for their beautifully shot fight sequences and this one is no different tell me i'm wrong no you're right this part of (laughs) it This fight goes back and forth. It's like Donnie gets surprised in the first round, but then he's quickly back with a vengeance. And then there's this beautiful scene that like, I felt was a reflection of Rocky Balboa because this scene pretty much was exactly as it was then. Conlon knocks Donnie out, and he just flies onto the canvas, just eyes closed, limp, and just goes down. And we see shots of Rocky, Bianca, Marianne, and then we get closer to Donnie and we see like what he's thinking about. And all these thoughts are rushing through his head. And he sees himself as a child and the day he met Marianne. And he sees Bianca. And he sees when he kissed her first for the first time. And he sees Rocky the day that Rocky fell. And then he sees his dad. He sees Apollo. And they show footage of Apollo from the first Rocky fight. And as soon as they see Apollo... Donnie like breathes a breath of 
life into himself and he gets up like no problem like he didn't even miss a beat and he goes in for more so the fight keeps going and at this point his eye is completely swollen shut and Rocky's like I'm gonna stop this fight I should have stopped that fight with your dad but I'm gonna stop this fight and Donnie's like no don't stop anything I gotta prove it and Rocky's like prove what and Donnie says that I'm not a mistake That line. Yeah. And so Rocky agrees to let him fight the 12th round. And so toward the end of the 12th round, Donnie knocks Conlon down onto the canvas. For the first time ever, Conlon is on the canvas. This has never happened before. It's a big deal. And before the 12th round runs out of time, Conlon manages to get up and the bell rings. And the announcer says that it's a split decision, just like in part one, and that pretty Ricky Conlon is still the champion. So really similar ending. And then we cut to what I presume to be maybe a week later or so. Sometime later, Donnie is still recovering from his injuries. You can see it in his face. But him and Rocky drive up to the art museum where the steps are because of course, this is a Rocky movie, so we have to go to the steps. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so Rocky drives Donnie up to the steps. They park in front, and they start walking up the steps. And you can see Rocky, he's having a hard time walking up them this time. <laughs> and Donnie just kind of helps him get all the way up to the top. And they make it up there, and they look out, and they see the entire city of Philadelphia. And Rocky says... Sometimes you can see your whole life from up here. And Donnie asks, how does it look? And Rocky says, not bad at all. You? And Donnie says, not bad at all. And the movie ends. Great movie. Such a good movie. Um, oh, this whole soundtrack, top to fucking bottom, dude. Like, I had to, I had to narrow it down to four, but my honorable mentions list is like, <laughs> but the whole soundtrack I absolutely encourage you guys to listen to the whole soundtrack some of my honorable mentions include Work Your Muscle by Ears Check by Meek Mill Wake Up Everybody by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes Don't Waste My Time by Crepton Conan and Waiting for My Moment by Childish Gambino Janae Ayuku and Vince Staples Love the Creed soundtrack um so fucking good so fucking good i don't want to listen to anything else ever ever again (laughs) um so this is such a great movie it's it's such a great way of continuing the rocky story without actually having to focus on rocky and not only appealing to a new generation but introducing the generation to this like really storied like legacy about this boxer and i as much as I would have loved for, like, you know, Apollo Creed to have been alive <laughs> um, for the sake of storyline, mm-hmm. it's cool to see his name continue to live on. Like, I've heard there's going to be a, a part three. Oh, you know? really? I've heard. I don't know much. But um, I loved part two. And I love Creed. So. It's a great, great, great choice. Yes. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that was my movie. Um, all of the songs will be added to our master playlist. 
and lots of clips and audio will be on the blog and all of our links are in the instagram bio info thing you've had an excellent movie choice one of my favorites (laughs) it's such i'm like you i love boxing movies (laughs) yeah yeah like i'm not i don't know if i'd be so much into actual boxing (laughs) movies the movies are good yes they're hyped up (laughs) the actual boxing is okay but the movies are better if boxing was shot like the movies, I'd like boxing. For sure. I need some more yeah, background I story. <laughs> I need the dramatic music. I need the close-ups. I need the lighting to change. I need the vengeance. I, I need slow motion. I need slow motion. It has to happen. And montage. Yes, and happen. montage. Of course. <laughs> I love it. All right. So my choice for movies who were filmed by black directors and starring very notable black actors is the 2018 movie that literally made history. This movie is well known for many, many things. One of the things that was so amazing to me when I was researching was this movie was nominated for 265 different awards and it won 112. This movie broke records. It has become the ninth highest grossing movie of all time. That's worldwide. And then the third highest in US and Canada. It became the first action Marvel movie to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. It was the first Marvel Cinema Universe film to win at Academy Awards. And the movie that I'm, of course, talking about is Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Misa and I didn't mean to choose movies that were both directed by the same person, but Ryan Coogler did direct Creed, and he also uh, directed and helped write the screenplay for Black Panther. This movie was very close to his heart because he remembers the first moment he saw the Black Panther comic in a store when he was six in California. And ever since that day, it stuck with him because there are not very many black superheroes. There's just not. And for him, it was his moment to really, really challenge the philosophy and the way that black superheroes are portrayed because often they're portrayed as villains. And that is why this was just a definite choice that I had to choose for us, you know, talking about how amazing black directors and writers and just everything that they do in Hollywood, despite the adversaries that they go through. Um, This movie is filled with amazing actors and actresses. Um, It has Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita, I always say her last name wrong, help me out, Misa. Lupita Nuango. Thank you. Lupita Nuango, Martin Freeman, Daniel Kulaya, Leticia Wright, Winston Duke, Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker, and Andy Serkis. I say that wrong too. Is that right? (laughs) Andy, I can't say I'm, his last name. I'm pretty sure it's Andy Serkis. I thought it was Michael Sheen. My bad. No. They, they look alike. They do. I agree with you. No, it was not. And it took me a second to be like, oh my God, that's the thing from Lord of the Rings. And not the guy <laughs> from Underworld. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> You're not. 
<laughs> so this movie, guys, I could I really could feel like several episodes just about Black Panther because there's so much amazingness in this film. And especially if you don't know all of the history of Black Panther, um, the comic book, it, this movie is literally just, it's so rich with information. And you don't even realize when you're watching it because Ryan did such a good job of researching all of the amazing African history, researching the Black Panther comic books, um, you know, just really, really diving in and talking to Stanley and making sure that he was a hundred percent accurate, even down to the hair, the music, the costuming, the way that they built the set in Atlanta. Um, Ludwig, and I always say his last name wrong too. Help me out. Lauren. I, I Googled how to pronounce it, so I know for sure, is uh, Ludwig Jorensen. Ludwig Jorensen, who actually also helped Ryan for Creed, and they have a history together of going to school, and that's how they kind of started tag-teaming each other in their projects. Um, he went and visited several different areas in Africa to really research the drumming, the vocals, to completely embody a score that matched what we would see if Wakanda was real. Um, again, Ryan wanted everyone on the set to also speak, and I'm going to say this wrong, but um, in Wakanda, they speak Kosa, which is a real African language. And he, everyone was trained and taught how to speak this language and how to have an appropriate accent. So it was like just 100% authentic. Um, so I know I'm jumping into a lot of information. I know I'm kind of geeking out, but it's because I do love Marvel. I do love Black Panther. Like I'm repping my Black Panther shirt right now. I know you can't see it, but um, post it on the Instagram. Yeah, I'm gonna post it on the gram. Okay, I'll send a picture. Um, so this movie is a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and this movie is a follow-up to Civil War, which has the first introduction to Black Panther. This movie is supposed to take place a week after T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, has passed. T'Chaka is played by John Kenai, who actually does naturally speak the language Kosa, and he is the one who actually trained, along with his son, everybody on the set how to speak the language and how to appropriately have the accent, which I thought was really cool. So I'm kind of sticking a fun fact in there right now. Sorry. Okay, so moving on. This movie is a part of Phase 3. I'm pulling up IMDb so I, so I can keep up with the names of the characters and who they're played by so I can picture them. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> it's a loaded fucking cast. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Okay. Loaded. Okay, so like I said, this is a part of Phase 3. This movie is supposed to take place right after Civil War, even though in reality it was shot a couple years later. Um, and like I said, Ryan really did try to pull aspects from the comic books, but also making Black Panther, he wanted to make him a household name because the comic books, they while released, they were a part of Fantastic Four, um, and they didn't really have their own standing even though it was one of the earlier African descent um, superheroes, if you will. So jumping right into the movie, we open up on a voice telling a young boy about how Wakanda was started. And it was 
a giant meteorite that crashed and it has vibranium. It's an amazing metal that is blue and it is literally what gives Wakanda all of the medical advances, technological advances, and makes them just one of the most powerful countries, even though they don't show it off. Um, But we learn about how Wakanda was started. And it originally started with the five tribes. And they found this heart-shaped herb that was grown from the metal. And it gave the person who ate it the superhuman abilities. And so the people of Wakanda named that person the Black Panther. And this is when we get the first Black Panther. So Black Panther has changed over time. And that does follow up with the comic books. Um, The five tribes then agree that the king is Black Panther. So only one person from Wakanda can have the powers of Black Panther at one time. Does that make sense so far for people who don't know Marvel, Misa? Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay, so after we get this background story about how the Black Panther came to be, we realize that the Wakandans don't want to use the vibranium for negative aspects. And that's what they see happening around the world. They see war, they see famine, they see people killing each other, and they decide that they want to hide from this. And so they isolate themselves and they pretend that they are literally just a third world country. Um, And in fact, um, taking note from civil war, when they are introduced at the UN, they are called one of the poorest countries in the world, which is in reality, just a complete cover up. Okay, so then we move forward to, um, we see Oakland, California. We see like this basketball court that's got like a a milk crate basket on it. You know, like one of those really low socioeconomic basketball um, courts and kids are just playing and there's tons of kids playing. It's late at night and we see this like shiny blue light floating in the clouds and we're introduced to a character. We don't know his name yet, but he is talking to another person about selling weapons and where they're going to deliver them. And as they're doing this, they hear a knock at the door They go and look, and um, it's supposed to be a young Forrest Whitaker, and his name is Zuri, and he says that there's some Grace Jones-looking girls at the window, (laughs) which is hilarious. (laughs) Isn't one of them Michonne? Oh, my line. Um, One of them is Michonne, yes, but she's a younger Michonne, yes. (laughs) awesome. Yes, it is. It really is awesome. And the person who plays the younger uh, Forrest Whitaker looks so much like him, but they're not related. It's insane to me. Um, And they actually have the same last name. I believe his name is, I'm sorry. um, I think it's Denzel Whitaker. Um, And you can look that up for me, Misa, since I know you're following along. I am staring at the cast list right now. (laughs) Okay, perfect. It would be like the younger Zuri or whatever. Um, So... Zuri lets him in and the three women come in and you see that they're carrying swords. Um, I'm sorry, not swords. They're holding staffs and they introduce themselves as people from Wakanda and they ask who the man is and he shows his sign. And then he says that he's Prince Najobu. Then they uh, tap their staffs on the ground. And then we see the Black Panther in real life. And this is where we are introduced to the first Black Panther 
which is King T'Chaka. And he confronts his brother and says that they have realized that someone has stolen vibranium from them. And Nijobu asks T'Chaka, what are you doing here? And he says, I want you to look me in the eye and tell me why you're banding your people. And that is when Zuri, who has actually been undercover the whole time, shows that he is a Wakandan. And for those of you who don't know, every Wakandan has like the vibranium with inside their lip. So when you show their lip, it's got like your name, um, glowing blue. Like an inside lip tattoo? Yes, which was a stupid trend. But yes, Misa. (laughs) You mean you don't have an inside lip tattoo? (laughs) Uh, no, I know someone who got bitch written on the inside of their lip. Dumb. Sorry. (laughs) Not the same as being born with it because you're Wakandan. Okay. Yeah. Totally different. So this is when Zuri does show that, um, Prince Njobu has been taken, uh, vibranium and has been selling it to people who are using it for weapons, for killing. And at this point, the story stops here and we fast forward to present day. What really happens is T'Chaka does kill Ninjobu, who is, you know, just making bad decisions. He's letting, you know, the American society infiltrate his brain and he's deciding to kind of shift gears away from what the Wakandan people have been teaching him. He's using it for evil, which is what they said they didn't want to do. Exactly. And you know, this is, they decide like they can't have it. So then we see the blue light go back and we are back into present day. And this is after T'Chaka has died. And so T'Challa is heading back to Wakanda and he is going to be named King. Um, he is working with Okoye, who is Michonne or Denai. I always say her name wrong, too. I'm pretty sure you said it right. Okay. I've heard different things, and that's why, like, I literally, if you look at my history, it's like, how to pronounce? <laughs> and then I watch the YouTube video that's, like, over and over and over again because I suck at pronouncing names. And I'm so sorry if I'm butchering names. If I am, please, like, leave comments and be like, no, it's pronounced like this. I promise I will practice. <laughs> So Okoye, who is played by Michonne, of course, she's a badass always. We see that Okoye is the all, the leader of the all-female fighting force, which is the Dora Milaje. And this is one of my favorite things from the comic books is that not only did they have an African um, superhero who was ridiculously powerful and the richest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they also have an entire all female fighting force. This female fighting force is the complete defenders of the king. And I love that because feminist. (laughs) Yes, girl power. (laughs) Exactly. Love it. So at this point, we are with T'Challa and Okoye, who are going to get his ex-lover, we realize, Nakia, who is played by Lupita Nyong'o. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and she is so gorgeous, guys. She's gorgeous. Oh um, my gosh. I fell in love with Lupita Nyong'o in Us. I just thought she was so beautiful. She is. She's absolutely stunning. She's gorgeous. And yeah. in this movie, too, like, I mean, they, even though, of course, they have makeup on, they really did try to do very little to embody what they would have actually looked like 
you know, based on the comic books. Um, and she's gorgeous. She is Mm -hmm. gorgeous. So they're going to pick up Nakia who is a spy. Um, and she kind of like helps protect other women. Um, she's undercover. They go to get her to let her know that T'Chaka has died and that T'Challa is going to be named King in the ceremony. And so he wants her to be there, even though they're, you know, ex-lovers, whatever. They pick him up. uh, They pick her up. They head back to Wakanda and we're introduced to this gorgeous, gorgeous village. And of course, when they first do the flyover, we see like what people traditionally think of Africa, like fields with, you know, animals riding around, people in the traditional garb, um, you know, the brightly colored, the patterns, the head wrappings. We see the um, neck circles, like the jewel, um, the rings that go around the female's necks, um, Mm -hmm. the big piercings, you know, all of that stuff. But we also see this huge, like, mountain that's showing all this blue and we see flying cars and all this amazing like technological advances that you wouldn't think of being in the supposed poorest country in Africa. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's beautiful. And this entire set was actually built in Atlanta for the movie. Um, And again, Ryan wanted to make sure that it was as accurate and he had Stanley come in and help design what Wakanda should look like, as well as visiting different tribes in Africa to make sure it truly embodied what Wakanda would look like. So I thought that was really neat. And I'm sorry that I keep throwing like random facts in, but I just want to make sure that I don't talk too much. So I'm trying to fit it all in. (laughs) So we see, um, you know, T'Challa's getting ready for the ceremony. Um, The way that Wakandans do it is that he is the natural born leader, but they are allowed to have someone challenge them from the different tribes. This is when we're introduced to actually one of my favorite characters, M'Baku, who is played by, help me out. Yes, Winston Duke. My God, he is a gorgeous man. Dude, he is a mountain of a man. Like, he is just so tall and handsome. He is. I had to look it up. He's 6'5", and I just am like, drooling. God, he could be a wrestler. Like, I'm (laughs) drooling. Why isn't he a wrestler? (laughs) he's gorgeous guys okay gorgeous and he's an amazing actor and I love his accent for this movie he like trained and tried so hard to be a hundred percent accurate and authentic throughout this movie and I just you know how I feel about actors who do that and this cast is filled with everyone can I mean the entire cast was on board with that philosophy And that just makes an epic movie to me. So M'Baku is the leader of the fifth tribe, the mountain-dwelling Jabari tribe. And he challenges him for the crown. And they're on this beautiful waterfall area. Everyone's chanting. And these two start fighting. Um, It gets intense. Like, they are truly fighting for the crown. And they have these head masks on that they can use as weapons. Um, And both M'Baku and T'Challa get hurt. But T'Challa is victorious. And he becomes the new king. As soon as he gets onto the throne, he is informed that someone has stolen vibranium from a museum and they know who it is it is ulysses claw he's also introduced in civil war and he is 
kind of a super villain. He has a arm that I guess he lost his arm and then he reconstructed one that actually has vibranium inside of it. And he is like just batshit crazy. Um, so once they find out that he intends to sell it and where his location is, T'Challa, along with Okoye and Nakia, plan to intercept him at the underground casino in Busan, where he is going to be selling the vibranium. So we get a shift in scenes to leaving Wakanda to like a very um, traditional like South Korean street filled with little shops all down it. And we see this woman who is kind of selling fish, but then there's also like a hidden um, casino behind her. And so the three enter in and we are hearing the song Hangover by... PSY or Psy and Snoop Dogg. Take your drunk smoke like a broke stove. Don't quit. Take flight. I can't remember last night. It's I this the life. Okay, so again, I did say PSY because some people actually spell it out. It is actually pronounced Psy. That is the correct Korean way. This song um, was written by Sai and he actually wrote it specifically to have Snoop Dogg sing with him. Um, for those of you who don't know much about Sai, he is a South Korean singer, rapper, songwriter, and record producer. He is most famously known for his Gangnam Style. And I'm going to be really honest, I hate that song. So- I really did too. <laughs> <laughs> like, for real. I, I can't stand that song. Um, but I mean, you know what? It made him famous and he's very well known for it. I mean, he's gotten all kinds of different awards and things for his song. His song is one of the only music videos on YouTube that exceeded 1 billion views. Um, actually, it became the first video to do so in website history, which wow. I know is really crazy. Um, and it is the seventh most view video in all history, which again, that's really cool to come from nothing to, you know, making absolute history. Um, so Sai wrote the song and wanted to have Snoop Dogg record it with him. Um, this song is very different from like the music that we've heard in the background so far in the movie, because everything so far in the movie has been very, um, score heavy and very, um, Wakandan and African influenced. So this is kind of the first real song we get, if you will. Um, And it plays throughout the entire first part as they enter the casino. We see differences in the way that they're dressed and the way they're acting because they are trying to blend in. Um, So there's not a whole lot of information about this song. It did first show on the Jimmy Fallon show, which I thought was interesting because you had your little tips about Jimmy Fallon earlier. Yes. Um, and um, for those of you who don't know, like I said, that's pretty much like all the information that I have about Psy, um, Snoop Dogg. I know I've covered him in the past, but 
Calvin Cordozar Baradas Jr., or better known as his stage name, Snoop Dogg, is an American rapper, singer, songwriter, producer, media personality, entrepreneur, and actor. He began his musical career in 1992 when he was discovered by Dr. Dre and was featured on Dre's solo debut, Deep Cover. Um, And then he was also on his album, The Chronic. He has sold over 23 million albums in the United States and 35 million albums worldwide. So a really smart idea of Psy to write a song specifically for Snoop Dogg to be on. You know, if I do say so myself. And Uh, for Snoop Dogg to agree to do it. Okay, and not only that, but he flew to film this video in, um, I'm sorry, in South Korea, but he only had 18 hours. And the way that he like convinced him, he said he wrote the song for him. And then he told him that the entire video, all he wanted them to do was drink. So he said, if you can give me eight hours of shooting, I'll give you 10 hours of alcohol. <laughs> I and, and literally what I like, that's literally what is quoted. That's what he gave him. And that's what he promised him. And that's what they did. I, fucking love it isn't that crazy i am friends with the wrong people <laughs> same so not only did he fly him out there but then he feel like he you know got him drunk 10 uh. hours of drink that's crazy um so this this music video because it does follow both of them literally just drinking all over korea um it's a great music video i uh, i know misa will probably find it to put it on the blog but it at this time has over 310 million views on YouTube. Um, and so this is his number two international single hit after Gangnam Style. And of course, being in the film Black Panther wasn't bad for the um, wasn't bad for the song either. And yeah, so that's all that I have about that song. Um, It is very different. Like I said, I do like that they put it in here. Um, And Ludwig and Ryan agree that they kind of wanted to have the differences in the today music as well as the score. And so I really love that about this movie. So after they get into the hidden casino, we immediately hear the awesome song pray for me by the weekend and kendrick lamar i'm always ready for a war again go down that road again it's all the same Okay, so one fun fact I love about this movie is that Ryan approached Kendrick to have him specifically write music for the film. He wanted nothing but Kendrick Lamar's songs. And so Kendrick did just that. He wrote a complete album featuring lots of different artists and bringing in his own people to have an album that matched Black Panther. And guys, it's like an amazing album. Even though only three of the songs from the album are actually in the film, the entire album is based off of the film. And Kendrick really tried to embody what was in not only Civil War, but also in Black Panther to focus on just how T'Challa was feeling. So this song was written by Kendrick and The Weeknd together. Um, And 
because the other songs are covered by Kendrick also, I'm going to kind of cover all of the information about him now. Okay, so Kendrick Lamar, or Kendrick Lamar Duckworth, which is his real name, is an American rapper, songwriter, and record producer. And he is seriously regarded as one of the most influential artists of our generation and often cited as one of the greatest rappers of all time. After Tupac, of course. (laughs) (laughs) course. Um, He's also a part of like a hip hop super group called Black Hippie. He does have his own record label, um, Talk Dog Entertainment. And then he also has several like label mates who he opened this record label with, um, Absol, J-Rock, and Schoolboy Q. And then his friend, um, Soul Tunes is actually one of the, or Mark Anthony Spears is one of the main hip hop recorder producers and songwriters from Top Dog Entertainment also. And so he was used on pretty much all the songs in this album as well. Um, He started his career when he was like 16 as a stage name knowing um, K-Dot and, you know, just releasing like mixtapes and like gaining local attention. And then Finally, he caught his break after his first retail release. Um, Then he released his first studio album. And this is when several people noticed him, including Busta Rhymes and Snoop Dogg, which I thought was fun because, you know, there's always that sixth degree of separation. Mm -hmm. Um, He has won over 13 Grammy Awards, two American Music Awards, five Billboard Music Awards, a Brit Award, 11 MTV Video Music Awards, and a Pulitzer Prize for his album. The Pulitzer Prize, he actually made history doing that. Also, he is the first person who was nominated that was non-jazz or classical and who won. So that, I mean... That marked history. And he won that um, Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for his album, Damn, which does feature one of his most known songs, Humble. So, I mean, he's very, very well known. And like I said, Ryan approached him specifically to help create this album and gave him 100% freedom with it. I thought that was very different because you don't see a lot of directors doing that, especially for Marvel. And having them create an entire album for one movie is pretty much unheard of. So they wrote the whole album based on the film. Does that mean the film was completed and then they watched it and wrote the album or were they watching the process of the film? They were actually watching the process of the film and he gave him copies of the script. And then he also just kind of caught, caught Kendrick up on the comic book series. So they had a lot to work with. Um, As far as Ludwig went, same thing. Only Ludwig made all of these songs with his own thought processes and what he thought would fit. And then he was able to see the movie and then he went in and edited the scores to fit the scenes a little bit better. But what I love is that Ryan picked to have the score written specifically as well as the whole album. And that's what is different. I just, I I love that process. I love that kind of musical freedom. And again, just like showing how music completes a movie. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, even though Ryan has his vision of the movie, like he gives these people the opportunity to write music that matches the scene. And that's when they get that real artistry to go in and like truly, truly match the scene and go and like edit music or go and like change different compositions, if you will, or like, um, do different pieces, which actually both Kendrick and Ludwig did when they were writing music for this. Um, they had to narrow it down because they kind of, overwrote if you will so does that make sense yes (laughs) perfect sorry okay so I covered a lot about Kendrick um this song was also written by The Weeknd which is uh Abel McConan Tesfe is his real name Mm. Mm, mm, mm. and I love him some weekend um he is a beautiful an eccentric Canadian singer, songwriter, and record producer. Um, he began his recording career in 2010, actually anonymously, by posting just a bunch of different songs to YouTube. And after, you know, getting positive feedback, he released his mixtapes, House of Balloons, Thursday, and Echoes of Silence. And he got lots of recognition um, due to his kind of like, he has a very unique style, Right. Yes, like he he's another one of those artists who just kind of um he mixes different sounds and different genres. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes his 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 music so unique. Like he's very poppy. Like I remember um I feel it coming from his Starboy album when I first heard that, I thought Michael Jackson was brought back to life. I swear to god. Like I was I sent it to you, I think. You I was like I actually remember like this conversation. <laughs> Oh my God. I was just, I was so amazed. But at the same time, you know, he can rap mm-hmm. and the hip hop aspects are there at the same time. It is very much dance music. Um, but then it's also chill music. You can just have it on the background while you're working. Like he's, he's, I would say one of those up and coming universal artists, he will become known as a universal artist because his music just fits everywhere. Agreed. And another thing I like about him, and this is like totally off topic from his music, is his style. He's very unique and he definitely doesn't let others like pressure him into what his style should be based on mm-hmm. his music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that and a big part, a big aspect of style in general is confidence. If you mm-hmm. wear it with confidence, you can pull it off. It doesn't fucking matter what you're wearing. And so like Prince. Like Prince is an excellent example. Like Prince wore things that were feminine. Mm-hmm. Prince wore things that kind of gender bender, but it was fucking Prince and Prince got away with everything. And Prince had that confidence. And I think The Weeknd is similar in that aspect. At the same time, I know with his latest work um, and his latest look lately, he's kind of been rocking like the mustache with the sunglasses and the red yeah. jacket. Mm-hmm. And he was inspired by Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, I love it. Which I and that's another callback to like classic music, old sound, old school. Like, uh, I just I love which is really love, evident love. in his fourth album. Like, I yeah. I love it. I love that feel. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and so the weekend he is, you know, pretty new to the game, but he's already made his name and he's won three Grammy Awards, two American Music Awards, nine Billboard Music Awards, nine Juno Awards, and has been nominated for an Academy Award. He's already hold he already holds several charts for being the first artist to simultaneously hold the top three positions of the Billboard Hot R and B songs with Can't Feel My Face, Earned It and The Hills. Like that's yes. really rare. 
he is literally one of the most successful Canadian recording artists. Um, one other thing I think should be appreciated about the weekend before I let you move on. Um, his music videos are on a whole nother level. Like he is very much a movie geek like us. Yes. He loves music. He loves music and he loves movies and film and the history of film. Like if you go and watch his latest music video in your eyes, I'll post it on the blog. He pays homage to like three different horror films and it's beautiful. I didn't even really like that song very much, but after the music video, I appreciated it so, so much more. Like he, and of course now he's transcended into like acting. He was in um, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. Yes. And that's something that he wants to delve into. So like he's so multi-talented. Like I sit in anticipation to see what he's doing next. Yes. Agreed. He's amazing. And so him and Kendrick together on this song, and they have such different styles, but it works for them when they come together. And this is actually their second collaboration. Um, They were, um, Kendrick was featured on Sidewalks from the Starboy album. But the song is just, it's got Kendrick's kind of rough, you know, rapping verses with the weekend's kind of higher falsetto singing. And it is a beautiful song. And it just, it's perfectly written and it was composed. Um, Both of them got together and they talked about how T'Challa was feeling after the death of his father from civil war. And so they both kind of reined in on that to write the lyrics to this song, which I thought was just, it's so cool because just like you said, they're movie geeks like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, it changes the songs for me when I know what they're written about and what their inspiration was for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So great song. So like I said, this song plays, um, in the background right after they enter the casino, um, the three split up. And of course with the vibranium technology, they're able to like have these little hidden earpieces that they walk around and they're kind of separated and they're trying to see where the Americans are and how they can locate claw. While they're walking around, T'Challa sees an American agent that he recognizes. And so he walks over, and it is Agent Ross, um, who's played by Martin Freeman. So he walks over to him, and he asks him what he's doing there. And Agent Ross kind of, you know, gets defensive, and he's like, my business here is none of your business. This is an American issue. You need to leave. And he does reference, again, Civil War. He's like, I covered up the king from a poor third world country running around in a highly advanced cat suit. I suggest you leave. Um, And that does, you know, uh, happen in Civil War. Um, But... T'Challa does not back down, and he tells him that if you are the one who's buying from Claw, I'm letting you know Claw is coming with me. And he walks away. Ross kind of follows him around, and they're at this. There's a really funny scene here uh, while the song is playing. As he walks away, they're actually playing craps, and it just so happens that T'Challa wins. And he doesn't care, though, because he's not there to, you know, actually win. And this is when Stan Lee has his um, little part, and he's like, oh, I'm just going to take his winnings over to my side. And he's just so adorable. And Agent Ross is just kind of like, okay, whatever, and walks away. But it's just a really fun little scene right there. Uh, So this is when Ross tells him that 
um, he needs to leave. And then we also see him talking to someone else saying the king from Wakanda is here. And this is right as simultaneously Claw has rolled up outside and he's got like 10 decked out black SUVs. He walks up, he kisses the Asian lady that we saw from the beginning and walks right in to the casino. During this time, um, Claw is obviously very well known. He's walking around. He's got his entire entourage. As soon as he walks in, um, Okoye sees him and lets T'Challa and Nakia know. And they're still kind of monitoring because they realize that they have weapons, even though you're not supposed to bring weapons into the casino. And so T'Challa's like, we don't have enough manpower. We need to calm down. However, during this time, Okoye is caught someone sees her talking to herself and hears her talking in uh the wakandan language and then this epic fight breaks out and of course like she has her staff hidden somewhere in her beautiful red dress i don't even know where it comes from um but she like bangs it down and she's like kicking ass. Um, Nakia's fighting, T'Challa's fighting, like everyone is going crazy. And that's when Claw realizes that T'Challa is here and he actually uses his vibranium arm to shoot T'Challa. Um, and of course, Claw's insane. And as he does this, he, like T'Challa holds up, I guess. I've actually never been to a casino, but it's like a, a chest full of money or something. And when he shoots it, all of this money goes everywhere. And Claw's like, I made it rain. Ha 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 ha. And then he leaves. I don't know. It's cheesy. But anyways, he leaves. They follow him out. And this leads to an amazing car chase. As they get into the car, uh, Claw tells his driver, drive, 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 drive. And then he's like, can you put some music on? This is a car chase. Like I can't drive with no music. And we get the song Ops by Kendrick Lamar, Soundwave, Ludwig. And this song was written for the album, but then they also created a film mix that was a mix of the original song and a score, which I thought was really cool. So I wanted to include that. Okay, so I kind of covered um, Kendrick already. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Soundwave, which is one of Kendrick's producers for his label. Um, again, I couldn't find a whole lot of information because even though he is you know, kind of well-known in the Compton area, he's not super, super big outside of the Top Dog Entertainment label. Um, so Mark Anthony Spears is professionally known as Soundwave. There is no D. So I hope you guys can hear me pronouncing that correctly. Um, he is an American hip hop record producer and songwriter from Compton. He and Kendrick go way back, like teens, early twenties, way back. And, um, they, decided to create the Top Dog Entertainment, and he is one of the original members of the Californian hip-hop label. Um, he has worked on every single Kendrick Lamar studio album since 2009. So he does have Grammy Awards for the albums Good Kid, 
Mad City, and To Pimp a Butterfly, as well as the Pulitzer Prize for the album Damn. He did receive two Grammy Awards for Best Rap Song in 2015 for All Right and Best Rap Album in 2017 for Damn. Um, Even though he does work with lots of other artists, I guess Kendrick is, of course, the most well-known who he works for. And Soundwave doesn't rap like independently he is much more a producer and songwriter behind the scenes but we know how important that is Mm -hmm. so very important um and like i said this song is a combination so it does have um ludwig on it and i know misa covered a little bit about him so i'm just gonna say a little bit more um he is a swedish composer conductor and record producer ludwig and ryan met when they were in school together and that is why Ryan pulls Ludwig in for his scores and that's why they have worked together on all of Ryan's movies and like Misa mentioned he has worked on a lot of um, movies but also TV shows like Community, Happy Endings, and New Girl as well as The Mandalorian from Disney Um, and he also collaborates frequently with different artists such as Childish Gambino, Chance the Rapper, and Pell. Um, let's see. I just want to make sure I gave everyone credit for the song Ops before I talk a little bit about the song. Oh, I did forget to mention someone. Um, Vince Staples is also featured on the song Ops. Um, he is an American rapper, singer, songwriter, as well as actor. He is a member of the hip hop trio Cutthroat Boys, and he is from California. Um, he is a close associate of Odd Future. Um, which is a group, in particular, um, Mike G and Earl Sweatshirt. He signed to Motown Records and Blacksmith Records. He kind of got his name out there by being on some of the albums by Odd Future, as well as his mixtapes, which were with Mac Miller, who produced some of his projects, which I thought was really cool. Um, He is very young. He's like... 22. Um, but he's really, really trying to make a name for himself. And he, what I like about his style is he does very like avant-garde dance electronic kind of influences. So his music isn't very like what you think of when you think of like typical rap music, like it's very experimental. Right. Like rap is a really big umbrella now. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. So many different styles. So, um, but yes, so they all came together to write the song Ops and it is a song that's written about like opposition. It's literally about, you know, written for cops or like an opposite gang. And that's who they're calling out in this song, um, which is perfect for this scene since Black Panther and Nakia and Okoye are chasing Claw. Um, But it also is very much fitting for what we're going through right now in society. Um, This song was actually not very well received at first. However, they let Kendrick perform it at the 2018 College Football National Championship halftime show, which I thought was really interesting considering, you know, everything that went on with NFL and the kneeling and just like, I don't know, just the timing. I don't know. I right. just thought it was different. But I, I really like that, you know, Kendrick was able to put himself out there 
even during times that weren't, you know, very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, it is when they are pursuing Claw and his men through the, ste- the streets of Korea. Um, the entire album is calling out the other person. It doesn't have a specific person who they're calling out. Um, and I like that that makes it very encompassing to anyone who's kind of opposing your view. And Kendrick and Vince are not nice about it in the song. They have a very like no fucks given. One of my, like it immediately opens with fuck y'all want from me. Y'all don't want money. Y'all don't want me. Y'all want to die in the chase of things. Like I love it. And it, it talks about Scarface and it talks about how like I got my judge on me, which is an allusion to a gun, um, and basically tells you, like, you're not safe no matter where you go. Like, you can take your keys, you can take your car, you can do whatever, some of the lyrics, but I'm still going to find you. And it's just the perfect chasing song, and it makes the other person feel very much like you're not going to get away with what you did to me. And that can be for anybody. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's the perfect song for this scene. Um, and this scene actually ends very abruptly with uh, T'Challa taking down Ulysses's car. And then we see like all these people standing around them and realizing that they're all recording what's happening. And T'Challa is in the Black Panther costume. So instead of him killing him, he allows... Agent Ross to take him back and question him. While they're being questioned, this is when we see uh, Killmonger and the other people who are with Claw. They come and rescue him. Ross actually jumps in front of Nakia to save her during this time. And so that is why Ross is transported back to Wakanda and his sister starts fixing him. Um, During this time, Killmonger and Claw are kind of like boarding this hidden plane and Killmonger kills Claw. And he takes him back to Wakanda. He reveals his identity as Njobu's son and he challenges T'Challa for the throne. This is when everyone hears that Njobu has a son because no one knew about this at all. Like T'Chaka had it completely hidden from everybody. And since he is the son of someone who potentially could have taken the throne. He has the right to challenge T'Challa. This is one of the hardest scenes for me to watch because Killmonger has so much anger and animosity towards T'Challa and the entire Wakandan people because of what his uncle did. It's an incredibly hard scene for me to watch. And, um, Michael B. Jordan, who plays Killmonger, um, said that he actually prepped for the role of Killmonger by watching the Joker um, from earlier movies and reading the Joker comics, which I thought was really funny, (laughs) as well as isolating himself and keeping a journal to make him really get into the role of Killmonger and to really embody what it would feel like to have your father killed, you know, at such a young age for him and just spending his entire life trying to figure out where the Wakandan people are, how to gain access to it and how to get vengeance for his dad. Um, And you can see it. This scene, like, 
Michael does an amazing job, and he beats the shit out of T'Challa. He ends up throwing him over a waterfall, and he's like, I'm your king now. And part of being a Wakandan person is that's your king. Like, even if you don't like that person, even um, Okoye, who is the leader of the Doras, she, her position is to defend the king, regardless of who it is. And so she has to make the decision to go and try to help T'Challa's sister and the mom go and figure out what to do or to stay and serve Killmonger. So she ends up staying and serving Killmonger. And it just, it's, it's so heart wrenching to watch, but just such a good, such a good scene. So after all of this, um, Killmonger is officially put on the throne and he says that he wants to start mining the vibranium and putting it out in the world specifically to kill places that are weaker than them or lesser than them. And to really let everyone know that Wakanda is here to stay, which is, as you know, against what the Wakandan people have fought for, for all of these centuries. Can I interject? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to add something. Um, So sorry if this is like too on the nose, but um, as someone who hasn't seen the movie, but I'm hearing you explain it. And of course with everything that's happening now, um, it kind of sounds like life is imitating art. Like in a sense, like there's this new authority, newish authority figure who has really bad intentions and who wants to make all these changes to a country that go against everything that country was built on and stands for. And there are going to be people who have to rise up and fight for what it really means. Right. I wish I could hug you right now because you, I like, I literally have a note to say that, like how it alludes to what's happening. Like, Oops, yes. Sorry, I took it. No, no, sorry. thank you. I'm so glad that like you're picking up on that because that's, that's what I was trying. My main point to express was that because to me, this absolutely is like what we're going through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm so, yeah. I'm so glad that you said that. So glad when a movie can even um, imitate life, if you will, or the Mm -hmm. other way around, um, makes for a really good outlet. Like when people want to feel hope, when they want to feel optimistic about the world, they can go watch a movie like Black Panther. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just, it's, even though it's very aligned with what's happening and guys, you're going to go through so many emotions. If you haven't seen this movie, even if you have, please go rewatch it. Like I have watched it probably 12 times this past week and a half um, to the point where my kids are reciting lines. If that says anything, I mean, we're all Marvel geeks, so I'm sure they were reciting them before, but now they're reciting them even more. Anyways, you're going to go through all of these emotions and you're going to realize once we talk about the ending, like it absolutely takes all of us. And I will talk about that in just a second. So the queen mother, And Nakia and Shuri, the sister, are, like I said, trying to find assistance. They actually end up going to the Jabari, which is the tribe that I told you in the beginning who challenged T'Challa. That's where M'Baku is from. Yes. They are 
kind of, they've already kind of separated themselves from everyone. They're in the mountains. And so they go up, they get on their knees. They literally are begging for forgiveness. And this is, this is actually one of my favorite parts because this is when like you realize Mbaku does not give a fuck. (laughs) And, um, so agent Ross is also with them and he is the only white person there. And he starts trying to talk to Mbaku and he was like, you will not talk one more word or I will feed you to my children. And then he says, just kidding, we're vegetarians. <laughs> oh, that's great. And I'm sorry, but it's just, it's so funny. It's hilarious. And of course, I butchered the accent. They trained, I didn't, forgive me. So they beg for his assistance and they tell them like what is happening with Killmonger and how he's literally draining the vibranium, which really does affect all of those different tribes. Even, you know, if they're further away from where the central point is, it still affects them. And so Mbaku hears them. And this is when he says, come with me. He shows them that they actually found T'Challa from the water and they have him like on this snowbed, keeping him alive. He's in a coma. Um, This is queen mother takes the only heart plant they have somehow saved crushes it up and they feed him and they pray to the ancestors and um, Mbaku tells him to stand up and this is like a really big deal because the Jabari tribe has like I said always kind of been on the outskirts Um, they haven't really given much support for anybody and you know just very independent so this was a really big deal um, in regards to how the tribes are getting along so during this time we switch back over to Killmonger who is wearing his own Black Panther suit and he is starting to send the vibranium out on the plains. We see the border tribe and the Doras who are all kind of standing around guarding because they don't know what's going to happen. And then we hear T'Challa yell out at Killmonger who says, I never back down the challenge is not over. Killmonger's like, I'm done with that shit. The challenge is over. I'm the king. And this is when the Doras realize, you may be my king, but I don't have to follow you. And they start fighting him. The border tribe is not so sure yet. So they're still fighting the Black, the Black Panther. Um, Shuri and Nakia have gotten Ross into to kind of like remote fight the jets so that they can shoot down the planes that are carrying out those weapons and the vibranium. There's this massive, massive fight going on. Um, the border tribe rides rhinos. So they have these armored rhinos come out. The Doras are fighting. Um, Black Panther is fighting everybody. Killmonger, who's also in his Black Panther suit, is literally about to kill Shuri. And that's when T'Challa sees this happening. He ends up breaking the people who are attacking him and kicks Killmonger down into this vibranium mine. Um, During this time, both of their suits are kind of like voided because of the power of the vibranium. And they're going back and forth and, you know, fighting and talking and like not talking, like fight talking. I don't know what it's called. Beefing? 
what are they doing, Misa? What do you call that? Shit-talking? There you shit-talking? go. Kind of shit-talking, but also, like, kind of, like, being real about their situation. Like, you know, I waited for this long. Like, I guess monologuing. That's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Incredibles. Oh, God. Sorry. Such a nerd. So... Killmonger is monologuing, and this is when T'Challa sees his chance and he stabs his cousin. Um, However, T'Challa is not a heartless man. He takes Killmonger up to the sunset because while he's monologuing, Killmonger explains that his dad always told him that one day before you die, I want you to see the sunset of Wakanda and offers to heal him. But Killmonger says he knows that after he's healed, He's just going to be imprisoned and he would rather die a free man. He pulls the dagger out of his chest and he dies in T'Challa's arms. On the outside of the war, it looks like we are going to have the border tribe who is in supporting of Killmonger. They don't know he's dead yet, though. Um, They have all the girls trapped, so all the doors are trapped. And then we hear... Umbaku and his Jabari tribe arrive. And guys, when I say like I get excited, I get so excited at this part because the way they roll up and Umbaku is a big guy and he picks up one of the border tribe members and throws him like nothing. And then we get this huge battle when finally the border tribe bows down and they admit that Killmonger is crazy. And then T'Challa walks out and everything is restored with M'Baku back in the National Tribe Council, which is, again, a really big deal because now we have all of those tribes represented in the Wakandan kind of like parliament, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. At this time, T'Challa takes Shuri to California. And she says, when you told me you were taking me to California, I thought you were taking me to Coachella or Disneyland, not to a basketball court. (laughs) And uh, T'Challa has taken Shuri to the place where their father killed their uncle. And he explains to Shuri that he is, even though he didn't agree with Killmonger and the way that he was handling things, he does agree that the people of Wakanda do need to start using the vibranium for good and for educating other people on how to appropriately run a country, how to be united, and um, just their science and their technological advances. And so he explains to Shuri that he has bought these like five different buildings around there and that Shuri is going to be leading that advancement. As soon as he says this and Shuri is so excited and like screeches, we get this little boy who runs up and he's like, who are you? And T'Challa just smiles and the song, All the Stars, takes us out to our end credit. This song was written by Kendrick Lamar, Soundwave, and SZA, 
S-C-A. I hope I pronounced that correct. Um, this song honestly is like one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, I did already cover a lot of the information about the other artists, so I'm going to very quickly talk about SZA and then the song. Um, Solana Imani Rowe, or professionally known as SZA, is an American singer, rapper, and songwriter. Um, she has her own EP, but she's also very well known for being featured on different songs. Um, she was featured on the Maroon 5 What Lovers Do song, and that earned her her first U.S. Top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. And of course, for being on this song, she peaked at number seven in the U.S. and also earned the nomination for the Golden Globe and Academy Award for Best Original Song. Um, she is considered a neo-soul song, so again, kind of her own genre of music, um, which is described as kind of like an alternative R&B that features soul, hip-hop, um, a little bit of R&B, what's called cloud rap, witch house, and chill wave. Um, I'm not honestly too sure what cloud rap and witch house are, um, so if you guys want to educate me and Misa, Please let me know, or if Misa, if you know. Should... No? Okay, just kidding. Uh, so this lyrics are described as kind of like unraveling or unnerving because she does talk about those themes that people don't often want to talk about, which include sexuality, um, nostalgia, and abandonment because she does have some of those childhood issues that she grew up with. Um, she is not, like I said, she's known but I love that she's still kind of independent. And of course, she is signed with Top Dog Entertainment. So that's one of the reasons why Kendrick did reach out to her about being on this song. So yeah. So this song, like I said, is um, written by Kendrick, SZA, Soundwave. And this song was actually one of the first songs that they released before the entire album. Um, it coincide with uh, Top Dog's announcement that its president, um, Anthony Top Dog, I cannot say his name right, I'm so sorry, Tif Tifith and Lamar would be actually producing the entire Black Panther soundtrack album. So before it was really released to the media and everyone, they had actually already written this song and then put it out to show that they were 100% doing the album. Um, and Marvel Studios did confirm the news and reveal that Lamar was handpicked by Ryan to produce the entire album. Um, and honestly, like I said, this was one of those things that I really do love that Marvel Studios gave Ryan so much freedom to do because he approached them with the story for Black Panther and they gave him 100% freedom with it, which I love. I love it. Um, so yeah, this song takes us out. And this song was just, it was amazing. It's an amazing song. The video is amazing also. And it did win several awards. Um, it won the best original song at the 76th Golden Globe Awards and the 91st Academy Awards, as well as it received four nominations for the 61st Grammy Awards, including Record of the Year and Song of the Year. It did win the best song at the African American Film Critics Association as well, and won the best visual effects for a music video in 2018 at the MTV Music Awards, which I thought was also very cool because you don't see that a lot for songs that are in movies um, to chart as high as they always do, especially if it's specifically written for the movie. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this song takes us out. Um, it's an amazing song. It 
it was nominated for so many other awards also. It it's just it's just such a good song. And I do think it got snipped in some of the things in some of the awards, but it did win quite a bit for, like I said, being a song that was an original song being written specifically for a movie. Um, it does actually sample um, from a 2012 song called The Greatest View by The Flume. So I thought that would be something that we might be able to um, put in to the blog. Um, yes. Thank you, ma'am. And I did want to talk a little bit about the um, song meanings and the facts, which I did find some research on from the website Song Meanings and Facts. And it talks about why the song was so brilliant, because the song All the Stars is literally named after the ancestors that the Wakandan people often refer to. And anytime when there is a new king, they have the tradition of making them drink that heart-shaped plant that I talked about, and it takes them to see the ancestors who all at first appear as this beautiful sky filled with all of these stars. They try to tie in so much about the movie to the song. And the video also encompasses so much from the film. Like it, it opens up on them getting out of one of the Wakandan jets and then there's all the people. It focuses on the, um, the Wakandan people. They're all dressed in very traditional garb. They're talking about love, but it's not the right kind of love that you and like I would think of. It's actually talking about T'Challa and Killmonger and how, you know, they're supposed to be family. They're supposed to love each other and how we see that love at the end of the movie after both of them have gone through things. It's just, it's a really deep song, very deep song. So even if you don't watch the movie, go and listen to the song. And of course, because we're watching a Marvel movie, there's always an Easter egg after the song plays and we have the first set of end credits. We do get the sign showing us that Black Panther will return. And then we also get to see a little bit of Bucky who was in Civil War also. So we know that the there's... Frozen Soldier? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Winter Soldier. Yes, the winter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so we do get to see him. And uh, Black Panther does come out in Endgame. Um, and he will have his own movie um, in Black Panther 2, which is a part of the uh, Marvel Universe Phase 5, I believe. Five or six. I can't remember which one it is. So, guys, the entire album is amazing. Of course, I wanted to really pick the songs that were in the movie. Um, I have – just go listen to the entire album. The entire album is amazing, even if you don't watch the movie. It's phenomenal. Kendrick Lamar did an amazing job. Um, and like I said, there's just so much about this movie that is absolutely phenomenal. It really did – break so many different titles it has so much history that it just it created history like this is a history making movie um and this movie which is it was so well thought out and done uh just kudos to ryan he did an amazing job amazing job so please 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 go watch the movie um one fun fact that i did want to mention and even though i did kind of try to tie in lots of different things throughout the movie um michael b jordan is an amazing underrated actor and i just want to say that because he went through so much to create this character because his character 
actually isn't in the comics. So he was approached by Ryan and they kind of created this character for the movie. Um, and he's, he's mentioned in the comics, but he wasn't mentioned as his cousin. He completely embodied this character and made him his own, just brought him to life. And, you know, Misa and I love when actors do that. I mean, he's, he's just phenomenal. He's phenomenal. So mm-hmm. I just had to give that little shout out to Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, actually, there is one other fun fact. Wesley Snipes wanted to play T'Challa. I thought that was fun. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. He yeah. actually tried to get the movie back. Um, he tried to get the movie going back in 1992. Like he even had a completed script and everything, but they turned it down because they just didn't have the technological advances to film a movie like this. Sure. Yeah. It would have looked like Mortal Kombat part two. Yeah. Or three. I mean, the movie that I'm just joking. Um, They literally told him it would be someone in like a cat suit running around. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it it was probably better that they, Waited. I mean, even the first Spider-Man didn't come until like what two thousand four. Yeah, I think so. Ish. Yeah, and I like, think it might have been. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah, I think you're right. Two thousand three, two thousand four. I can't remember. I remember it was like first year school. of middle school. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I mean, it's it's we're just so we're so blessed to have the technology that we do, um, so that we can see these amazing movies. And this movie is just it's so rich of history and black culture and it focuses so much on just really embodying like that African the true African tribal costuming hair makeup like the accent everything it's just it's hands down one of my favorite Marvel movies um and I know I say that about all of them guys but I mean I own several shirts I own lots of different Black Panther books because I love to read up on it. It's like I could talk for hours and hours about Black Panther, but I've talked for long enough. So I hope you guys enjoyed my movie. And I hope that if you haven't seen it, you will definitely go and watch it. And if you don't want to watch it, at least go listen to Kendrick's amazing album with the same title, Black Panther. So both of our characters had something in common that I thought was very interesting. They both had to fight. And... They both had people who were rooting for them in their corners and people who were against them. And we just here at Soundtrack City want you to know that we continue to fight every single day. Mm -hmm. Just because a movement isn't trending doesn't mean it isn't happening. Um, Just because it's not in the headlines doesn't mean it doesn't happen and that it's not occurring. Um... My best advice would be just to get involved any way you can. If you have the means to protest, do it. If you have the means to donate, do it. Uh, sign petitions. Look into petitions. Look into contacting city officials. You know, if you want change, then be the change. Take steps toward the change. Don't expect other people to do it for you. You know, there's that old quote about how they came for them and I didn't speak for them and they came for someone else and I didn't speak for them. And then I, they came for someone else and I didn't speak for them. And then they came for me and there was no one to speak for me. I don't know the exact quote. <laughs> I know I butchered it, but I think about that a lot. Meaning like, is there. Yeah. It's the context is there. It's um, amplify your voice for those who can't amplify their own and amplify voices that you know and those that you don't. 
you know, the world would be a better place with a lot less hate. And I can't think of any better way to end our episode. Yeah. Great quote. We hope you guys have a wonderful week. Until next time, we hope you enjoyed both of our movies. And like we both said, we're here fighting. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>